Welcome to this Peer Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.peervoice.com forward slash QYZ. This activity was initiated and funded by Al Nylum. The medical content was developed independently by Peer Voice, Sander Garalfs and Shabir Muchala. Hi everyone, my name is Sander Gerels. I'm an MD working at the MI Children's Hospital in Amsterdam. And in this presentation, I will discuss the eliminate A, B, and C trials, including the rational study design, patient population, endpoints, and clinical outcomes from the studies. Patients with peach type 1 overproduce oxalate due to a deficiency in the hepatic peroxisomal enzyme alanine glyoxalate transaminase, or HET. Excess oxalate can lead to recurrent kidney stones, nephrocalcinosis, and ultimately progressive kidney failure. Since patients in kidney failure are unable to excrete the excess amount of oxalate that is produced by their liver, oxalate will deposit in other tissues of the body, leading to systemic oxalosis. Current management options are limited, and there's an urgent need for new therapies that can reduce hepatic oxalate production. Lumacerin is a subcutaneously administered investigational RNAi therapeutic that decreases hepatic oxalate production by inhibiting the production of glycolate oxidase. Starting with the Eliminate A trial, which is a phase 3 placebo-controlled randomized controlled trial that included both adults and children above the age of 6, with a diagnosis of pH type 1 confirmed by genetic testing and estimated GFR above 30. In this study, patients with pH type 1 were randomly assigned in a 2 to 1 ratio to receive either lumacerin or placebo for six months, after which all patients were to receive lumacerin in an extension period of up to 54 months. Eliminate A met its primary endpoint during the double blind period of six months. Lumacerin led to a rapid and sustained decrease in 24 hour urinary oxalate with reductions seen at month one and steady state achieved by end of the loading dose phase, which was month three. The person's reduction in 24-hour urinary oxalate excretion from baseline to month six for the mastering compared to placebo was 53.5%, with a least square mean reduction from baseline of 65.4% in the mastering group and 11.8% in the placebo group. In addition, lumacerin led to statistically significant improvements in all hierarchically tested secondary endpoints. 84% of patients treated with lumacerin achieved near normalization, which was defined as less than 1.5 times the upper reference limit of normal. And 52% of the patients achieved complete normalization in their 24-hour urinary oxalate levels at month six, as compared to 0% in the placebo group. After six months, the patients initially randomized to lumacerin had a sustained reduction in 24-hour urinary oxalate through month 12, and patients initially randomized to placebo who crossed over to lumacerin demonstrated a similar time course and magnitude of 24-hour urinary oxalate reduction with a mean reduction of 57.3% after six months of treatment. Consistent with the reduction in urinary oxalate excretion, plasma oxalate declined significantly in patients treated with lumacerin relative to placebo. 
patients initially randomized to placebo who crossed over to lamastrin demonstrated a similar time course and magnitude of plasma oxidase reduction. The Illuminate B trial, which was an open-label single-arm study in young patients with PH1, including infants and children under the age of six, again, confirmed a diagnosis of PH1 by genetic testing, and here an EGFR above 45, or normal serum creatinine if the patients were under the age of one. Patients received the master, starting with three loading doses and then quarterly dosing, and the dosing was dependent on their weight. The mesmerin met its primary endpoint in this young patient population. The mesmerin treatment led to a rapid and sustained reduction in spot urinary oxidate creatinine ratio across all weight groups, with a mean reduction of 72% from baseline to month 6. In line with Illuminate A, the mesmerin demonstrated positive results across all secondary tested endpoints, including additional measures for both urinary and plasma oxalate. The measurements showed a promising safety profile, and the majority of adverse events were mild transient injection site reactions, which occurred in 41% of all patients treated with lamastrin during this study period. Continuing with the Illuminate C, which is the final of the three studies, in this study, patients were included with an EGFR below 45 of all ages, and again, a genetically confirmed diagnosis of PHSF1. Another key inclusion criteria was a plasma oxide level above 20 micromoles per liter. Patients were randomized based on their dialysis status. In cohort A, patients were not on the hemodialysis yet. In cohort B, patients were already on hemodialysis. The primary efficacy endpoint was related to plasma oxalate, and in cohort A, there was a least square mean reduction of 33.3% for plasma oxalate from baseline to month 6. In cohort B, we've looked at the pre-dialysis plasma oxalate levels, and we've seen a least square mean reduction of 42.4% in this cohort. Reductions in plasma oxalate were already evident by month when and persisted through the end of the six-month primary analysis period. Consistent with both the Illuminate A and Illuminate B trials, the measurement showed a very promising safety profile with only 24% of the patients showing mild injection site reaction as the most common adverse event in these patients. To summarize, the measurement showed a significant reduction in urinary oxalate excretion in both the Illuminate A and B trial and also met all its secondary tested endpoints. In the Illuminate C trial, Lumestrin demonstrated a substantial reduction in plasma oxalate from baseline in patients with advanced disease. And across all three trials, the adverse events that occurred were mild or moderate in severity. So what are the strengths and limitations of these studies in light of current practices for the management of primary hypoxeric type 1? So at this moment, the only available curative therapy for patients with pH type 1 is a liver transplantation, which is unfortunately related to high rates of both morbidity and mortality. The mastering could be a less invasive option for these patients. 
we still need to find out whether the decline in urinary oxidase reduction and, of course, the reduction in plasma oxidase levels seen in the advanced disease group, if that's enough to really halt disease progression. That's something we need to find out during the next couple of years. All these patients will obviously be followed during the next years, and that will really tell us if lamastrin could potentially substitute liver transportation as a therapeutic option for patients with PIP step 1. Thanks a lot for your attention. Hello, everyone. My name is Shabir Machala. I work at the Royal Free Hospital in London, and I'm a consultant specializing in nephrology for adults and also in rare diseases. One of my specialist interests is primary hyperoxaluria. So welcome to this activity on the evolving treatment paradigm for patients with primary hyperoxaluria. In this presentation, I'm going to discuss the significance of the Illuminate trial data within the context of the current standard of care, and I'll put the findings into clinical perspective. Primary hyperoxaluria type 1 is a rare progressive autosomal recessive genetic disease. It's important to distinguish it from other types of hyperoxaluria. There's another group called enteric hyperoxaluria that's usually quite easy to diagnose, but not always. And there are other conditions that can give rise to excessive oxalate production, but they're not always genetic in origin. PH1, primary hyperoxaluria type 1, is characterized by increased hepatic oxalate production, and that's caused by a deficiency of a liver peroxisomal enzyme called alanine glyoxalate aminotransferase, or AGT for short. This leads to excessive oxalate delivery to the kidneys, as that is the only way oxalate can be removed from the body. So even though this is a liver disease, the actual problems occur in the kidneys and elsewhere. The result is deposition of calcium oxalate in the kidney and the urinary tract, and that can manifest in a number of ways. It can manifest quite early on as nephrocalcinosis, which can be detected on imaging, and in the pediatric age group, that can sometimes be detectable from birth. In adults, it can give rise to kidney stones and also to progressive kidney disease and ultimately kidney failure in many patients. And as kidney function declines, the elimination of oxalate is reduced, leading to elevated plasma oxalate concentrations and calcium oxalate deposition in tissues, including bone, the vasculature, heart, skin, eyes, and even nerves. And this results in severe end organ damage, and that's a condition called systemic oxalosis. But the thing that really scares patients and clinicians, and also the thing that's most important from the point of view of outcomes, is the progression of renal disease. Again, this can vary quite a lot. Patients can sometimes have no detectable renal impairment, or they may have one of the five stages of chronic kidney disease, and they may be stable at that stage for a very long time. They don't all deteriorate, but some of them do. And if so, they deteriorate then quite rapidly and need to have dialysis, which is a bad outcome indicator in this condition. Now let's talk about treatments. To get the best outcome for these patients, they need a diagnosis as early as possible. But it can be very difficult to do that because presentation is often non-specific, especially when presenting in adulthood. In fact, the diagnosis is actually easier if the patient presents with a very severe phenotype at an early age. Unfortunately, we still see patients who have been diagnosed only after the primary non-function of a renal transplant when the patient's original cause of renal failure was unknown. And that's because patients don't always present with kidney stones or any other obvious symptom of pH type 1. So it's important to look really carefully and consider the diagnosis based on any calcification that might be seen. Early therapy affects long-term outcome. 
That's important because the patient's genetic analysis not only confirms whether the patient has pH type 1, but can also tell us whether they are sensitive to vitamin B6, also known as pyridoxin. This treatment has been around for many years, and patients with specific mutations are very sensitive to pyridoxin, which acts as a cofactor and allows the patient's remaining functional enzyme to be better used by the body and therefore reduce the amount of oxalate available. And if they're taking that and they are sensitive to it, their outcomes are often very good indeed. Treatment options for pH type 1 are otherwise very limited. They are to hydrate the patient aggressively and throughout the day for every single day of their life, a very difficult thing to do, especially in the pediatric age group. We often use potassium citrate or another kind of alkalinization. We use pyridoxin as described, and then there's renal replacement therapy together with a liver transplant, which is the only way that you can cure this condition. But apart from a liver transplant and patients who are sensitive to pyridoxin, the rest of them are simply holding maneuvers that aim to preserve kidney function and delay the time to dialysis, but not to actually cure the disease. So we do need to think about when we're going to transplant the patients. And quite often we consider this a little bit too late. You'll notice from this graph of kidney function decline that consideration of transplantation should happen very much earlier than you might expect for most kidney diseases. Currently, liver transplant should be considered at a very early stage if you notice progression. Also, a liver kidney transplant needs to be considered at a very early stage. Remember, this workup happens much earlier than we would do normally for other kidney diseases. The current important challenges in pH1 management are about reducing the chance of progressing to kidney failure, but also, in adults especially, reducing the chance of them having a recurrent kidney stone disease because each one of those episodes, quite often, can require additional urological treatment. And we mustn't forget that even in less severely affected adults, the oxalate deposits throughout the body. The areas that we tend to look at are, of course, the kidneys, but it can also occur in other soft tissues and also in bony tissues as well. That can give rise to bone fractures, anemia, and even dental disease. So it's really important that these patients have coordinated multi-system care provided by a team of experts who are able to monitor progression over time and document that information in whichever registry or system is available. Because only about 25% of patients are responsive to pyridoxine, the majority of patients with pH type 1 do not have a disease-modifying treatment available to them until now. RNA-interfering therapy is the new treatment that you've heard presented. The question really now is who would most benefit from this? In this slide, I've suggested some starting criteria. These are not guidelines, but merely my own thoughts and how I'd stratify it using current knowledge. So these criteria will almost certainly change. I focused on the adult population, but similar criteria might occur in some of the pediatric age group. This wouldn't include a severely affected infantile form of the disease where treatment decisions need to be made much, much earlier and much, much quicker. From the top of the list, most clinicians would probably agree that starting RNA interfering therapy relatively soon might be the best idea, whereas there may be some more debate as you go down the list. So how do we integrate these ideas, or whatever is eventually determined, into treatment guidelines? New treatment guidelines are on their way, but that, in a way, is the easy bit. The hard bit is to actually decide how they're going to be used in any particular healthcare system. So we need to have a proper clinical pathway. And that starts with diagnosis and works down through monitoring and then to prescription and then monitoring of the effects of new therapies. 
We're trying to do this in the UK in a virtual manner. We already have systems set up, such as the National Renal Rare Disease Registry, known as RADAR, and a national virtual clinical network for hyperoxaluria, known as the NHS Rare Disease Collaborative Network. We also want to be able to use these drugs in a cost-effective way because they are likely to be expensive. We want to be able to ensure that they're producing the best possible result for the largest number of people and that we are not treating patients who would not get benefit from the drug. The ultimate aim, of course, would be to avoid or reduce the need for liver transplantation. So in summary, the current therapies for PH1 are limited, with pyridoxine being effective in a small number of sensitive patients. RNA interfering therapy has demonstrated encouraging results in clinical trials and is now approved for the treatment of pH type 1. We now need ways to be able to use these medications properly. We need to have proper systems in place for monitoring and for the ability to determine how useful these medications are. And we also need to put as much effort into diagnostics as we do into treatment because there are probably many other patients out there who have not been diagnosed, especially in the adult group and they may well benefit from some of these new therapies. So, as in other rare diseases, diagnosis, research, and novel treatments all go together. Thank you very much for listening to this talk. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.